There are people visiting here today, whether students or families or singles, and you're thinking about whether you should make this your spiritual home, and you're coming here and you're asking, well, is this a healthy church? Is there a future um, for this church? I mean, the truth is that a study of, of uh, church history will reveal how many dramatic movements of God have ended up becoming fossilized denominational institutions. It happens, doesn't it? Their buildings are scattered all over the place, empty now. And so it's good every now and again to ask the question, how are we doing? Are we on track? And I think it's a good question to ask when there are still so many signs of life and health in this congregation. No good asking that question when there's no one here and you're dead. You ask that question while there's still lots of life. Are we on track? Is there a future together? And really, that is why I want us to study this book of Philippians. Uh, The Apostle Paul loved this church. He loved it. Just to think about them would bring joy to him. And he holds them up often as an example to other churches to emulate. He says, well, you should think about these Christians in Philippi. Look what they've done. Look what they're like. And I think this is a, a wonderful book to begin with as, as we start a fresh chapter in, in the life of this congregation with a, with a new pastor. Let's look at this model church together. And my hope is that as we study this book together, as we make, you know, get into fellowship groups during the week, uh, make use of those questions, get into this book during the week, and let's come Sunday by Sunday to study God's Word together. And my hope and prayer is, as, as we examine this, this, this model church and the apostle who, who wrote this letter to the church that he planted and then 10 years on writes this letter to encourage them, that we would be uh, encouraged, refreshed, challenged, and renewed for uh, the ministry that God would have for us here in the heart of Scotland's capital of Edinburgh. So if you've got your Bibles open, Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Why don't you follow along? Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses uh, 1 to 11, that's on page 1178 if you have one of the church Bibles here. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify How I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. In my last church, we used to respond to that by saying, thanks be to God. We might get into the habit of that, we'll see. So, this is God's word. There we are. Look at this very encouraging verse. Verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, in the past, I took this as a great verse for personal encouragement. Maybe you've done that. I've read this and I thought, wow, yeah, this is what I need. If God has begun a work in my life, he will certainly complete the job and see me safe home uh, until the day that Jesus Christ returns. And that, that certainly is a very precious thought, isn't it? Uh, especially when you're at the bottom of the cell, as it were, when life is pretty tough, especially when you fear that uh, temptations are pulling you off track. That's a great encouragement. But really, this verse is not primarily a verse for personal encouragement. This is a verse directed to the whole church in Philippi. This is a... uh, You know that because in the original language, the you there is plural. Verse 1 tells us who the you are. Look at it. Uh, The Apostle Paul is speaking to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Do you see he's addressing the whole church? That's the you he's referring to. And if you're coming from a Roman Catholic background, it may surprise you to see that the Bible refers to everyday living Christians as saints. In fact, you are greeted by many saints on the doors on the way in. St. Rodney led us this morning, and St. Paul is preaching. That's right, isn't it? Because the Bible's description of a saint is basically anybody who's put their faith and trust in Jesus. Here is someone that God has made his own, a set-apart one. You don't have to wait till you die and see if several miracles happen before they can call you a saint. Now, if if you're trusting Jesus today, you are a saint. And Paul is writing this letter to the whole church in Philippi. He had planted this congregation before he turned up at Philippi. No church. Paul came and he preached the good news of Jesus Christ and people got saved and people started gathering together as a church of God's people. And he says to them, 10 years on, as he writes this letter to them, he says to them, look, I want to encourage you that God is at work in you. God is at work in your church. And the great thing about God is he's not like some of the builders that you've, maybe you've dealt with. You know, you know how some people, the builders will come, they'll start the job, but you never see them again, they never come back and finish it. Have you had a builder like that? Well, God is not a builder like that. The work that God starts, he will always complete. And so Paul is absolutely confident that God will complete his work through that church. Something that's going to be seen clearly on the final day when Jesus Christ returns as Savior and Judge of the world. Paul says, I'm confident of this. That God's a work in you 
and he's going to get it done and achieved. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to see what an encouragement that verse would have been for them. There were lots of ways that they were being challenged. They were in a hostile city where many were opposed. They were experiencing intimidation and suffering just for being a Christian. And I think that's a situation that we are seeing increasingly today in 21st century Britain, isn't it? I think there's a sense in which the book of Philippians will have a a unique resonance for us as we head on into this 21st century as Christian freedoms are curtailed and Christians are marginalized and not just put up with, but actually face hostility for our faith. This is a book for us. This is a book for right now. Plus, there was also the challenge that within the congregation... There were all sorts of issues going on. There was rivalry, the Bible, this book says. There were, there were disagreements. They were threatening the unity of the church. And let's be honest, the problems of ego and pride have never really gone out of style, have they? This is always a threat when you gra- gather together a group of people who are basically repentant sinners. But despite all of that, despite the challenges from without and from within, Paul is confident that God is going to complete the work in their church. This church in Philippi will produce transforming, eternal, and God-glorifying fruit. Now, what a wonderful encouragement for them. Well, that's that's lovely that, that Paul was so confident about them. If he was writing a letter to Charlotte Chapel today... Could he say the same thing about us? Would he be able to be so confident? Uh, We know that if God is at work in something, then he's really going to get it done. But how do we know that God is really at work in our church and in our lives? How do you know that? Well, for Paul, the evidence that God is at work, in summary, is there in verse 5. Because of their partnership, in the gospel. Partnership in the gospel. This is a very important idea in the book of Philippians. We started to think about it before the children left, didn't we? That Greek word koinonia can be translated fellowship uh, or partnership. And I really do think that image of uh, the Lord of the Rings is quite helpful. Guys on mission together. Guys with all sorts of different backgrounds, but they're, they're bound together by a common purpose, a common goal. Fellowship in the gospel. Yes, they did stop from time to time to have a drink and uh, have a chit-chat and have some food, but that wasn't the fellowship. There was a goal. They had to get the ring into the fires of Mordor. There was a purpose and a goal to which they were all straining their efforts and their goals. Well, that's the word, the partnership word. It's translated here uh, as partnership, which is helpful if you're from a business background. If you're in a business background, you know what this word is. Business partners, what do they do? Well, good business partners uh, work hard together. If you've not got a good business partner, it's a bit of a pain, isn't it? And you probably all grumble about them. But ideally, business partners um, expend their resources and their time and their energy to the common cause of the business, whether it's running a, a, a chain of burger restaurants or a fishing business or whether it's a legal practice. A partnership binds people together to that common purpose. 
And a successful business requires a lot of hard work and sacrifice. And if all you do is, is drink coffee and say, have a nice weekend, how'd it go? How well is the business going to do? Not very well. It is going to collapse. It is going to fail. It's not going to do anything. Well, the partnership that Paul has in mind here is much more significant than a lucrative legal practice or a lucrative restaurant chain. It is partnership in the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul had his life turned around, didn't he, by the the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. There he was, uh, heading as a persecutor to Damascus, and Jesus stopped him on the road, blinded him, threw him to the deck, and says, you're mine. You're going to be my servant, and you're going to tell everybody about the good news that I am Lord and Savior. And the Apostle Paul's life was turned around by Jesus. And from that point on, what did Paul do? He went everywhere with a central goal in mind, to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. To proclaim that though we're guilty rebel sinners that deserve God's judgment and we're far off from God, God has made a way in Jesus where there's amnesty, there's forgiveness that's possible, that we can have our sins forgiven and be brought into right relationship with God through Jesus and that he is Lord of all. And Paul went about proclaiming that good news wherever he went. And he says to them, you were partners in the gospel from the first day until now. If you've got time over the, over the week, it's, maybe something strange happens, like it starts raining or something like that, something unusual, and you've got nothing to do. Why don't you read Acts chapter 16? And remind yourself of how this church got started in Philippi. And you'll read how from the very beginning, they not only heard the gospel, but became gospel partners with Paul. Uh, Lydia, the entrepreneur with the export-import dye business, well, when she became a believer, what did she do? She insisted that they stayed in her house. She opened a home to them. She showed them hospitality. She was willing to be identified with this, uh, this preacher man and his message. And then the Philippian jailer who had caused Paul and Silas's wounds before his conversion, is the one who ends up bathing their wounds. And, and again, he brings them into his home. There's a common theme here, isn't there? Brings them into his home, and he, and he feeds them after he is converted. One of the signs of true conversion is that you are engaged in partnership in the work of the gospel. And as the church gathered and went on year by year, they kept sending financial support to the apostle who brought them the good news. They were so thrilled by this good news of Jesus Christ. They said, look, there's lots of things we could do with our money, but we want to put our money behind Paul because he's going to share the gospel and other people are going to get saved and share in the wonderful good blessings that we are enjoying today. So let's get behind Paul. Time after time, they put their money and they sent their money to Paul and they weren't a wealthy church. They were one of the poorest churches. And yet, actually, of all the churches out there, they gave the most. And there's Epaphroditus. We're going to read about him as we go through the book of Philippians. Epaphroditus was the dude who was willing to travel through uh, those Roman roads with a big stash of money. Now, can you imagine how stressful that would be? Uh, These were not safe roads that you traveled on. These were the days of highwaymen and all the like. 
these were the days of swords and axes and bows, right? And Epaphroditus was brave enough to take the money and travel probably to Rome where Paul is in prison. Now, in prison, they didn't take care of you as well as they do today. You weren't guaranteed any food. In fact, unless people brought you food, you were going to starve. And the Philippians weren't having that. So Epaphroditus, would you go? I'll go. I'll risk it. And he goes with the money so he can provide food and he can care for Paul and show practically the love that they have for the apostle because of the love they have for Christ and they want to care for him. And Epaphroditus is willing to risk his life. In fact, he almost dies taking this practical kit, the gospel partnership. But not only did they give, they were also engaged in evangelism themselves. They were sharing the good news of Jesus themselves. And it was causing them lots of opposition. Look at chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. See that there? They're getting busy sharing the good news in Philippi themselves. And they're getting knocked back. And they're experiencing hardship and suffering for doing it. But they are gospel partners getting on with the work of spreading the gospel. And not only are they doing that, they're also active in prayer. Verse 19 of chapter 1. For I know that through your prayers... And the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Do you see what gospel partnership involves? It's all of that, isn't it? Opening our homes, practical love and care, financial support, prayer support, sharing the gospel ourselves, investing our lives in other people so that they may come to hear the gospel. Gospel partnership is all of that. And what can explain such a sacrifice and a commitment to gospel partnership? It can only mean one thing. What's that? God is at work. Now, look around you. Um, do the non-Christians around you uh, expend their time and their energy and their resources and open their home to see the good news of Jesus Christ being spread. Do they do that? No, they don't. And when the Philippians were pagans, uh, they didn't care about Jesus Christ. They hadn't heard about him. No, the fact that they are engaged in such gospel partnership is irrefutable evidence that God is at work. And that's why Paul is so full of thanksgiving towards God. Do you see that in verses uh, 3 to 6? I thank my God every time. In, in our translation it says, I, every time um, you remember me. No, the other way around, isn't it? I don't have the... Here it is. My brain just went frozen just for a moment. That's scary, isn't it? Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, in the original language, it could quite easily be the other way around. It could say, I thank my God every time you remember me. And I think that's more likely. I thank my God every time you remember me. And in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The sign that God is at work in a church or in our lives is that we are engaged in the work of gospel partnership. Do you see that's what the Bible is saying? Have I proved my point? This is the sign that we know that God is at work when we see a group of people engaged in gospel partnership. And so can I ask you this question? Are you involved in such partnership? Can you look at your life and say, yeah, I can see that actually in these ways I am actively involved in the spread of the gospel. I am a gospel partner in these ways. Can you see that about your life? You know, we are so glad that you've come today. It's great to see a full church at Charlotte. But you know what? That's not what we're trying to achieve. That's really not what we're trying to achieve. In fact, if we wanted lots of warm bodies here, we could do all sorts of things. We could run competitions and give away prizes. We could fill this place, no problem. That's actually not what we're trying to achieve. Charlotte Chapel's vision is to impact, it says, our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power and the message of Christ. Now, I want to maybe look at that and see if we can simplify that down a bit. So I want to give you a quite simple goal as a church, and it's RBS. Nothing to do with a bank that may be close to us, but I want you to think about RBS. What, what is our goal as Charlotte Chapel? It is to reach people in Edinburgh with the gospel. We want to reach out with the gospel. It is to build people up in their faith with the gospel. And thirdly, it is to send people out with the gospel. We want to train and send people out to start new congregations in Edinburgh and Scotland and the rest of the world so that people who haven't heard about Jesus will hear about Jesus, submit to his lordship, and get saved for all eternity. That's what we're about, to reach, build, send with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you today, are you a gospel partner with us in this? Now, I want to say that over the last few weeks, it's been a complete joy to see uh, just a little bit of, of the life of this church, to see that so many already are busy and active as gospel partners. And I want to say thank you. It gives me great encouragement. If I didn't think there were any gospel partners here, I wouldn't have turned up. It would have been easier, quite frankly, to start from scratch at that point. But I think there are many gospel partners here, and I want to thank you. We're working together. But I want you to look at your busyness and your activities. I want you to ask yourself, is what I'm trying to do, is it really achieving this goal of reaching out with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is what I'm doing, expending my energies and time, is it really building people up with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And am I doing something that really does help contribute to sending out with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, not every ministry that we're going to do does all those things, but are we collectively and together working as gospel partners to reach 
build and send with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like the Philippians in the first century, it practically can mean the same thing for us. Opening up our homes, opening up our lives for the spread of the gospel, giving of our time and our finances, of our prayers for the spread of the gospel, sharing the gospel that we're willing to, with those that we meet, being willing to sacrifice, being willing to endure hostility for the mockery that we might receive from others for sharing about Jesus, willing to be knocked back. Some, sometimes that just terrifies us, doesn't it? They might say no. I'm very glad the Gideons don't stop when they say no, right? No, you keep going. Now, I hope that as we have coffee and delicious sandwiches with all the corners cut so we don't chaff ourselves, I, I enjoy that as much as anybody. But I hope that when we're doing that, we're talking to each other about the progress of the gospel. Have any opportunities this week to share the good news about Jesus? You, you mentioned that person. Uh, I've been praying for them. Has anything happened? What happened with that conversation? How did you, how did you meal with your neighbor's girl? Did they, did they ask you about your faith? How, how is it going in the, in, in the YPM? How is it going in, in, in FBI? Uh, do you see that the, the children are understanding the gospel? Are they getting excited by the gospel? You see, that actually would be genuine fellowship, wouldn't it? The coffee and the cakes are optional, the conversation is the key thing here. Whether we are focused on our life together, having clear gospel priority. Now, my prayer uh, and uh, longing, and it's the same uh, for the elders, is that we, we, we long that this church would not, be, um, would not have passengers, but be a church filled with gospel partners. We know why we're gathering. We know what we're about. Now, the danger at this point is it can all sound a bit grim. Well, you just talked about sacrifice and giving my money, spending my time. That sounds a bit grim. But I want us to see here from Philippians chapter 1 that when we invest our lives with others for the spread of the gospel, look at what we experience. Look at verse 3. Great thanksgiving to see God at work. So often we're full of grumbling and complaining, aren't we? But if we engage in gospel work and we have our eyes wide open, we're going to be full of great thanksgiving to God. Great thankfulness. Verse 4, we're going to experience joy-filled prayers. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, Paul says. When we're engaged as gospel partners... Our praying is going to be a joyful experience. You know, we're going to think about that ministry, think about that person, and a big smile is going to come on our face. We're going to say, oh, Lord, thank you for them. Thank you, Lord. It's amazing what you're doing through Christianity Explored. It's amazing what's happening. Uh, with so many people coming to read through Mark's gospel, oh, praise you, God. Look at verse 5 and 6. When you live investing your life as a gospel partner, your life is full of purpose and assurance. You are living your life focused on the final day. The whole of your life is lived with the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back. And you know what your life's about. See, if you're sitting here today and you're bored with life, everything's a bit dull, you don't know what life is about, 
that's because you're not a gospel partner. You've not understood the glories of this gospel. You've not thought about how that should be the all-embracing passion of your life. Ditch the passion you've got. It's no good. Make this your central passion. It gives purpose. And it gives assurance. Because we know God is at work in such things. And look at verse um, 7 to 8. When we, when we work as gospel partners together, we're going to see a growing love and affection for each other that Jesus puts into our hearts. Look at verse 8. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. If we are a church full of gospel partners, this is going to be a very loving church. It's a very joyful church. A church full of thanksgiving. And a church that will be continually experiencing God's grace in our community life with others. Look at verse 7. All of you share in God's grace with me. Now these are great blessings, do you not think? These are wonderful side benefits of gospel partnership. When we're engaged together in this way, these are the fruits that we're going to see, and we already do see them, praise God, but we'll see them in growing and increasing measure when we embrace this central um, description for our lives that we are partners in the gospel. We have a fellowship in the gospel. Now, I'm not just talking about being busy. I'm talking about living our lives with gospel purpose. The truth is that it's all too easy to just do lots of church activity, lots of church stuff, and get completely exhausted, and none of it achieve any purpose whatsoever. I'm not talking about being busy. I'm talking about living with gospel purpose. And it might be that we need to have less organized church activities so that we can live our lives with this gospel intentionality to reach, build, and send with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think some of you are so busy doing stuff, you don't even know who your neighbors are. You've never had them over for a meal. Now, what good is that? If we're going to be gospel partners, we need to live our whole lives with gospel purpose and intentionality. Now, do we live like that? Do we live like that? Well, if I'm being honest, I have to say that there are moments of brilliant clarity when I go, go, Reese, that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's how you're supposed to be living. But the truth is, quite often, I get distracted. I don't know about you. It's just hard to get the kids out to school. It's just hard to pay the bills. It's just, it's just hard to get through a day. And then you crash at the end of the day and you think, well, what was my life about today? I, was, I, I mean, I was just maintaining. I was just getting through it all. The truth is, I find it hard to live with such a gospel intentionality. Do you? So what do we need? Well, I think it's wonderful that Paul moves from thanksgiving uh, for gospel partners, he moves to prayer for gospel partners. You see, if we're going to really be a church that operates as gospel partners to win Edinburgh for Christ to impact the world with the, uh, the message 
and the person of Christ, we're going to need to pray like this. We're going to need to pray like this and seek God's grace to live with such intentionality. Look at this prayer for gospel partners. Verse 9. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's a very involved sentence, isn't it? Let's just break it down into logical parts so we can understand it and then we can pray it for each other. Pray it for our church. What is the goal of this prayer? Let's work backwards. What's the goal of this prayer? It's there. It's the second half of verse 10. Um, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. That's the goal of this prayer. Now, compare and contrast to your own prayers. Uh, I compare and contrast this to my prayers with some embarrassment. Um, We often pray for results that will impact the present, don't we? We are ill. Lord, make me better, please. I don't want to be ill. We're unhappy. Lord, I want to be happy now. We have an exam. We say, Lord, please, by some miracle of recollection, put something into my head that was never there in the first place. Of course, you students are not going to do that. You're going to work hard. It's going to be in your head. But you're going to get to exam and say, Lord, I know I don't know this, but could you just put it in my head, please, before I do this exam? Now, is Paul praying like that? What's the goal? Where's he focused? He's focused on the final day, isn't he? He's praying that they would be ready to face eternity. He's praying that these Christian believers will be ready on the day that Jesus Christ returns. And he's asking God to so work in their lives that on that day, they're going to be pure and blameless without fault on the inside or the outside. And he prays that on that day, they'll be displaying great fruit because of their right standing before God. A right standing that comes through faith in Christ. And the result of a finish like that for the Philippians will be that God will be glorified and praised. Now that's the goal and the motive of all Paul's work and ministry and prayer. It's this, that God would be glorified and praised. Above all else, Paul had a huge vision of the glory and the greatness and the majesty of God. That was what was preeminent in his thinking. And when the risen Lord Jesus Christ stopped him on the Damascus Road, he saw a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that would forever change him. Everything else was lesser compared to the vision and the reality of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so he lived his life, expanded his energies to this end, that God would be glorified and praised. And the truth is is that if we see any fruit as a church, and by God's grace there's much evidence of fruit already, but any of that fruit will only ultimately be because God has done it. Isn't that right? He's been at work saving us, redeeming our lives, empowering our service, growing the fruit of the Spirit in us, and he'll get the glory because the one who started the good work will have brought it to completion on that final day. Now, the interesting thing to me is, what does Paul pray to enable this to take place? Well, let's work backwards. He prays that they'll be able to discern what is best. 
Now, we've thought about this already. Life's full of choices, isn't it? Every day you wake up to a thousand choices. Five different types of cereal, and that's just before you even left the door. And there's big decisions in life too, aren't there? Should I get married? Who should I get married to? What career should I pursue? What job should I take? What decisions should I make right now? And all those little decisions, all those little choices. And as Christians, the big moral choices of right and wrong should be pretty clear if we're reading our Bibles. What is much harder is, what do you do? How do you choose when there's a range of options? And none are either the, uh, neither morally good nor morally bad, but there's so many different choices. What am I supposed to do? Well, Paul is praying for these Christians that amongst all the choices of their lives, they would choose the best option. That the choices that, that, that they'll pick the choices that will lead them towards the goal of being pure and blameless on that final day. Paul doesn't want them to live lives of mediocrity. Now, life is full of good things, isn't it? Wonderful things sport, music, art, food, travel, family, homes, cars, careers. And over and over again, we need to check that the good does not get in the way of the best. And that's what he's praying. He's praying that they'll choose the best, to discern what is best. That of all the options that they have before them, they will think about what's the best option that will result in God being praised and glorified on that final day as lasting fruit will be produced in my life. I want to go that way. And what's fascinating about this prayer is what's going to get you to that point? What's going to help you be the sort of person who discerns what is best? And this is a very surprising answer, verse 9. He prays for a growing love. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. There's no specific object. He's, He's asking that God would expand their love more and more and more, that it would be a love that would be a growing love towards God, a growing love towards others, a growing love that pushes up and out. And the truth is, if we're going to engage in gospel partnership, if we're going to really sacrifice time and energy and our lives together for the glorious cause of the gospel, we're going to need love. Isn't that right? We're going to need a genuine love and affection for other people and a genuine love and a passion for God. And so Paul prays that they would have this growing love. And this love specifically would be a knowledgeable and wise love. The Beatles are back in the charts, aren't they? Amazing. And, and I'm hearing in the shops again, all you need is love. Well, not quite. Yes, you do need love, but it's a certain sort of love. It's a love that, that, that grows with knowledge. Knowledge of God. It's a, it's a growing love, a love that has discernment. A depth of insight into the practical issues of life. He wants them to have that sort of love, a growing love that knows God, that is a wise and discerning love. So putting that all together, because that's a lot to think about. Here's trying to simplify this prayer. It's a prayer for wise love so that they will live wise lives that will result in them being ready for the return of Jesus. That's what the prayer is about, that they will have wise love to live wise lives being ready for the return of Jesus. And you know, if we're going to stay on track 
as a church. We need to pray this prayer for each other. We're going to need God's grace to do this, aren't we? We are. It's so easy to be distracted, so easy to go off course. We're going to need God to do this for us. Is there a future for Charlotte Chapel? Well, looking at the number of people already involved in gospel partnership, I would say yes. Are you a gospel partner? Are you involved in this work together with us? Again, if we're honest, we have to say, well, kind of, kind of. We're so aware of how we fail, aren't we? We're so aware of how we fall short a bit. Well, here's my closing encouragement for you. It's right there in verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Isn't that great? That's encouraging, isn't it? Praise him. Right,